Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. This episode is brought to you by Florida Atlantic University's Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute. 2021 marks the 50th anniversary of FAU Harbor Branch's relentless pursuit of ocean science for a better world. Located in Fort Pierce, Florida, FAU Harbor Branch's cutting-edge research focuses on five major areas, marine ecosystem conservation, aquaculture, the connection between ocean and human health, technological innovation, and national defense. During my time at Harbor Branch as part of the undergraduate Semester by the Sea program, I learned so much about the ocean and what it takes to become a good scientist. The programs and opportunities offered at Harbor Branch have continued to swell since. To learn more and how you can get involved, please visit fau.edu hboi. That's fau.edu slash hboi. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. Question, what kind of plankton win the most battles? Phytoplankton. Did you hear about the seaweed that was programmed to dance? They use one of those algorithms. My guest today is the executive director of Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute, Jim Sullivan. Jim has had a fascinating career starting with the smallest and quite possibly the mightiest organism in the sea, phytoplankton. Jim shares how his career shifted towards studying these tiny powerhouses and how it led him from anti-submarine warfare research to inventing new ocean-going equipment and exciting ocean exploration. Jim shares how he made the leap from research and development in Rhode Island to working at Harbor Branch and just why Harbor Branch is so special. Jim has some amazing insights into marine science and the world in general, and he shares how he effective legislative changes that had some pretty big trickle-down effects. We also chat about what true science really means and why sometimes it can be really challenging to do. Jim also has one of the craziest sea stories I've ever heard, so stay tuned for that. Please enjoy. Jim, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I am excited to chat with you today. Thank you. So how did you get into marine biology? Well, it's a long story, as most people are, but the the short abridged version would be when I was a, a kid growing up, our family had a beach house that we would go to every summer and I would just go walk around the water, go to tide pools, look at the animals in it, and just became fascinated with the ocean and the animals that lived in it. And looked forward to it every year. And as I, you know, matured through school, I always kept in the back of my mind that I loved to study the ocean. When I got my bachelor's, I actually got a degree in zoology. I wanted to be a medical doctor. So Mm. I was pre-med. But then I did... um, (laughs) I went through and did human dissections and things like that that weren't necessarily pleasant, Um, (laughs) decided that I didn't want to do that anymore and started looking for other careers in research science and saw an opportunity to go work as a technician, a research technician after I graduated at the University of Rhode Island Graduate School of Oceanography, where I essentially just tested out what it would be like to work in the field. So I, you know, had not really done oceanography or marine biology yet, loved it, 
was going out to sea all the time, just loved the people that were part of it and applied to school immediately thereafter. Amazing. So you were you went to University of Rhode Island during your undergrad? Yes. And that's where you got that experience. Very cool. Yep. Was your beach house also in Rhode Island? Yes, it was on the <laughs> South Shore of Rhode Island. <laughs> so it just made logical sense to try to go to school there as well. Well, you know, at that point, you know, it's probably changed over the years, but I was very fortunate because I lived in Rhode Island and the Graduate School of Oceanography at URI was one of the top oceanographic, marine biology, whatever you want to call it, schools in the country. Mm. So it was like having Harvard or Yale right in your backyard. So mm -hmm. it, was, it was quite uh, fortuitous. Amazing. And you got your master's degree in, <laughs> in what, did, what did you say? Nuclear warfare, <laughs> naval warfare. No, no. I mean, my my master's was in biological oceanography, so what most people would consider marine biology. Although right. most oceanographers take offense if you call them biological oceanographers take offense if you call them marine biologists, because I mean, to, to understand the ocean, you can't just study biology. You have to study right. chemistry. You have to study physics and understand how water moves. You have to even understand geology. Right. So. And oceanography teaches you all that. You learn the whole system, not just one part of it. So, yes, marine biologists, we can, we can call ourselves that, but we're really oceanographers. Yeah, I think that's a good point to bring up. Like, the biology part is the actual organism, um, but the oceanography is, like, how the organism interacts with the rest of the system. Like the right, and you can't understand an organism unless you understand the environment it lives in. Exactly, exactly. Anti-submarine warfare, that was the... <laughs> Yes. You got your master's degree in. <laughs> well, no, it was, it was in, it was in bioluminescence. So right. bioluminescence is animals that give off light when they're disturbed. Right. You right. see it in the ocean all the time. You can see videos of it online uh, in numerous places, but you can imagine if a submarine goes through a field of these bioluminescent organisms, it's going to be highly visible. And submarines are built around stealth. So <laughs> it was an issue for the navies of the world, and particularly the United States Navy. So they funded a lot of research in bioluminescence um, back in the 80s. Yeah. So what, what did your research uncover? What kind of walk me through what you had to do for that? For, for my master's, I really looked at what controlled the amount of light that phytoplankton, that's the the organism I studied, but there's other animals that give off light, obviously. What environmental factors controlled how much light they could produce? You know, are, are some days they really bright? Are some days they're not as bright? Mm -hmm. Because ultimately, we wanted to model how much light would be visible underwater if mm -hmm. um, they were disturbed. That's the ASW part of that. But that's really the Navy's problem. I wasn't, you know, doing classified research or anything like that. Right. You were, you were studying the little critters. Right. And I was basically looking at the physiology, you know, how much, if they were exposed to this much light during the day and they conducted this much photosynthesis, how much of that did they put into their bioluminescence systems and how did that change? And I found that they had both photo enhancement. If they had a lot of light, they grew good and they also could produce a lot of bioluminescence. And conversely, if they were in low light and didn't have as much, they didn't produce as much bioluminescence, which is, is, is would be a pretty normal response. Um, and I also looked at how light photo inhibited them because they don't produce bioluminescence during the day. That would be mm -hmm. worthless. It would be an energy expense. You can't see it. So right. I looked at what wavelengths of light turned them off essentially made them stop producing bioluminescence. 
That's really fascinating. So did you go out to the field and collect your samples and then bring it back to the lab and kind of test all of that? Or is somebody else collecting these samples for you and then you get to test it? Oh, I went uh, all over the Atlantic Ocean and parts of the Pacific. We did a lot of deep ocean field work. So we'd be out way out in the middle of the Atlantic in the Sargasso Sea. I worked off the coast of Iceland. We worked off the coast of Washington, kind of. A lot up in the northern Atlantic, because that's where Russian submarines were actually <laughs> coming out of. So it was an area the Navy was interested in. Uh, but yeah, and I did lab work as well, obviously. Everyone usually does. Um, I looked at circadian rhythms, which is just that natural 24-hour cycle humans have. Well, these, these little phytoplankton have the same thing. And I studied that in the lab and in respect to bioluminescence. Um, so a lot of lab work as well. Yeah, that makes sense. Were, were there some similarities kind of throughout the ocean or were there some like really huge stark differences in the phytoplankton reactions? Uh, it's They're generally the same, but very, very mm-hmm. large differences in just the different species that produce bioluminescence. Not all of them do. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a pretty small amount of them, but just how much light they can produce, you know, what what level of disturbance makes them produce light? Why do they produce light? I mean, we still don't have an absolute answer of why do these organisms, why they evolve this ability to produce light. Right now, the best case scenario is they do it to startle predators. So that flash of light, if something's trying to eat them, kind of scares them away, gives them a chance to maybe escape. So. Mm. Specifically for phytoplankton. Yes. But I know other animals, it could be like to attract me or... To, to lure prey in. Right, signaling. <laughs> they, yeah, like the anglerfish that has the little bioluminescent mm-hmm. barb that something will come up to and they'll eat it. With with higher order animals, it's not as hard to understand why they, they do it. But for phytoplankton, which are just single cell plants, it's like, okay, this is an energetic expense. Why do they why do they go through this, this issue of producing it? Which is kind of similar to why do they produce toxins? <laughs> That's another issue. Yes, absolutely. And I'd want to get into that, but I'm really curious why phytoplankton. It's not somebody's first thought when you think of the ocean, which it should be, but most people don't. Yeah, you know what? And I'll make a little plug for anybody out there who wants to be a marine biologist and wants to, you know, is wondering what they should study. The world needs more phytoplankton biologists. It there it wasn't all that popular when I started, and it's really not that popular now. Um, <laughs> You know, and I get it. They're little tiny plants that float around in the ocean. They're not uh, they're not like studying dolphins or, you know, what we call charismatic megafauna. But to me, they're the base of the food chain. They're the reason, you know, we have an earth. They produce most of the oxygen we breathe. They are the most critical thing on the planet. So mm-hmm. I to me, it was a no brainer to understand. I mean, this is really the font of life in some aspects or, or keeps us going and keeps the oceans going. So under trying to understand them better to me was fascinating. Now, uh, you know, I'm a nerd, but. Yeah. So was it kind of like on those oceanic cruises and you kind of got talking to somebody about it and like, that's kind of how your masters evolved or were you just like reading a book and you're like phytoplankton, that's it. Yeah, it, <laughs> it was the mentors and the peers that I was exposed to who were also phytoplankton um, ecologists and physiologists you know, and they they taught me, and that's the way graduate school works for students. I mean, it's really important that you have good mentors and, and people to get experiences from. 
but they excited me about, wow, there's all these unknown things and, and you can, you know, figure this stuff out. This is, this is the heart of research and why, why we all do it. And there was so much that needed to be studied that I just, I took it on immediately. So after your master's degree, did you know right away that you wanted to get your PhD or did you take some time to kind of figure that out? I did not. And I actually did essentially leave graduate school um, with my master's. I thought I wanted to be a research technician. So at that age, you know, being, once you get a PhD, you're kind of going down, okay, I'm going to go into academics or I'm going to go into industry, but I'm going to run my own lab. I'm going to mentor people. And I wasn't at a place where I thought, oh, I can write proposals and I can do all this. I thought I want to work for somebody and they can worry about, you know, that part of science. I was really Mm -hmm. into just doing the science, not all the other stuff that goes with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did, I became a research technician in a couple different labs. And as you mature and a lot of people go through this, you start to realize you're working for somebody and you're like, I can do this better. I, you know, <laughs> I actually, I can do your job because I, and you end up doing it anyway, most of the time when, you know, research technicians are the backbone of our industry, essentially. And a lot of them do just decide, yeah, you know what? You get the confidence, you can do the job. And I did. And I went back to school and got my PhD. Very cool. Now for your PhD, you kept with the phytoplankton. What did that research look like? I did. And I, I really started getting interested. Uh, at This was, oh, when was this? Like the mid 90s. There was a paradigm that was basically held by phytoplankton ecologists worldwide that turbulence, you know, rough water, mixed up water, really inhibited red tides or harmful algal blooms from occurring. They generally Mm. occur during the summer when the water is very stable and calm and we don't see them a lot in the winter. This was the paradigm, the dogma, if you want to call it that. And I just did not believe that. I I fundamentally, it was like, this can't be right. It's not that simple. So Mm. I uh, basically said, I'm going to do my PhD on trying to prove or disprove this theory that was being accepted by scientists all over the world. And sure enough, yeah, it turns out some don't like turbulence, but more of them actually like it. They grow better or it doesn't affect them at all. Yeah, because turbulence, I mean, theoretically, it could increase the oxygen available, right? Well, it can increase oxygen, but it's also a stress. It it can Mm. actually kind of not tear a cell apart, but it puts a lot of stress on the cell membrane, which can cause issues with growth. And it does Mm. in some species. They're large enough to feel the actual shear from the turbulence. But I, when I went to publish some of this work, I met with a lot of resistance in the scientific community because people, it went against their dogma. It went against their, what they were being funded to do. And I had to argue with an editor to get some of my work published. I'm just like, this is, you know, people are, are killing my research because they don't, it goes against them. And eventually it got out. What? Like that's what science is. That's what science is. Like you, you look at, you look at things and you study them or observe them, whatever. And then, if new observations or new, you know, new science comes out on it, like you kind of adapt. That's like the whole point of science. It is. And, but human, <laughs> humans are humans. And sometimes people get this implicit bias and they just, they're resistant to change. 
yeah, it's just, a, it's part of being human and I understand it. Yeah. Now it's high, it, my research. And then a couple of people came right after me. It's totally accepted that that was wrong. <laughs> that the, you know, what the community was basing their, you know, ideas on just wasn't correct. There was no real science behind it. So that changed. And I was part of that community that, that changed that dogma. Right on. Obviously it's a very, a very small community. <laughs> <laughs> Which makes it even more poignant that you were part of that. So why harmful algal blooms? You went from studying light to studying harmful algal blooms. Yeah, you, you start, you know, and everyone goes through different paths of, of why they're motivated to stay in science and what they love to do in science. I started to see just over my life that harmful algal blooms seem to be increasing all around the world. You know, you could start mm -hmm. to see the, the really negative effects they were having in our coastal waters and on fisheries and with people getting sick because they ingested toxins. And I, I really became interested in why is, why does this, why does this look like it's going on? You know, what are we doing? Mm -hmm. Is this humans polluting the, you know, the ocean and this is the ocean getting even with us essentially. So I just became very interested in these species of phytoplankton and, you know, why they produce toxin, how do they grow, when do they create these blooms, what happens, and just spent years trying to understand them better. So is it us? Is it the excess nutrients? Uh, well, in Florida, where we are, yes, it definitely, we mm -hmm. are contributing to uh, you know, and it's, it's not just excess nutrients, uh, climate change and global warming is also an issue. How we're changing weather patterns and increased runoff is an issue. These all contribute to these large and sustained harmful algal blooms that we have around the coasts of Florida in our waterways. And this is going on across the United States. It's just not a problem in Florida, but um, we are definitely part of this problem and we need, we need to, you know, try to fix it as best we can. Yeah. So my husband does stormwater engineering for Martin County, actually, and he was saying that part of part of what you know is contributing to all these extra nutrient loads is just the amount of people. I guess uh, South Florida Water Management District, which is our like main governing body down here that kind of regulates where our water where the waters go, because Florida's got a lot of water. It's yes. very swampy. Um, so they a lot of their models had. Uh, predictions for 8 million people ish. And we're like, like 10 times that right now. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, I what is the stat? It's like a 1000 or 4000 per day, some ridiculous amount of people moving to Florida every day. And I don't know the stat right off my head, but it's a large number. And they put extreme, extreme, you know, stress on all our systems, be it sewer, mm -hmm septic, agricultural runoff. I mean, all these different things. You know, I was named by the governor to be on the Blue Green Algal Task Force um, mm -hmm. for the state. And in that capacity, I learn a lot about just all of these aspects. And even with the best, you know, engineering we can do with septic and everything else, we're still kind of overloading the system. And it's it's really difficult, but your husband's right. I mean, it is just hard to control and not have pollution from so many people using the waterways and, and being on the coast. Yeah. So what, 
in a perfect world, we can control all the runoff, right? We wouldn't have any runoff coming from the land base into the water systems and the water systems being kind of like the rivers and that feed into the ocean. Um, is there anything like that people can do on their own individual level to kind of help that? Yeah. I mean, there always is a lot of counties now are banning fertilizer, putting down fertilizer during, you know, for your lawn or your plants or whatever it is during the wet season. So you can abide by those or, or not use fertilizer at all. You know, your lawn will survive. You don't need to do it. It doesn't need to look perfect. You know, little things like that can go a long way if everyone does them, you know. Right. Many times by millions of people. <laughs> right. Exactly. And, you know, again, one of the the really big things that people can do, which makes a difference, is become active. You know, talk to your local reps, talk to your state reps, even talk to your federal reps about stopping this, you know, putting in active control, telling the state to invest in septic to sewer conversions or, you know, inspections or new advanced wastewater treatment abilities so that we can minimize the amount of nutrients going into the water. We're never going to stop all of it. I mean, that, that can't happen, but because runoff is runoff, it's going to occur. It rains a lot (laughs) and it's hard to stop that. But right. we can minimize it by just having some smart practices and making sure that they're they're actually put into place and regulated correctly. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. Um, so as part of the Blue Green Algae Task Force, what what are some of your roles and responsibilities with that? Um, a lot of it is to we get uh, people testify, so to speak, to us from different state agencies like Department of Environmental Protection, FDACs, the Department of Health, just about how they're seeing this issue go, actions they're trying to take. We listen to them and we listen to other scientists who also talk to us and the public. Um, Public input at our meetings is very important. And we try to come up with recommendations to the governor and the legislature about what we can start to do to turn this around and and start to regulate and control this better. So we've done that. We're actually having a meeting this Wednesday at Harbor Branch for um, another task force uh, get together. Mm-hmm. But it, it really is just trying to synthesize and summarize the science as best we can and make recommendations that hopefully will get some traction up in Tallahassee with the legislature. Mm-hmm. Traction. It's important. Yeah. <laughs> so after we'll take a step back for a second. So you graduate your PhD with this like uh, kind of groundbreaking research, right? That kind of disrupted the mold a little bit. Mm-hmm. What what was next? At that point, technology really started to you know my computers. You know, I'm so old that I was around a time before we had cell phones and computers, but. <laughs> Oceanography and science in general really started to go through this, you know, development and maturity where personal computers were available and then all microelectronics and the kind of equipment that we could develop to understand the ocean better really became um, just kind of blew up and was really important in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s. So I was part of that whole development. And so much so, I became fascinated with technology as part of just my normal work 
that I actually left academia and went to industry. For eight years, I worked for the company Seabird Scientific, which mm-hmm. um, is one of the more popular oceanographic instrument manufacturers. Mm-hmm. I worked in their R&D department, trying to come up with uh, new instruments, yeah. new ways to calibrate, new ways to understand the instruments and get better data. And I, it was really rewarding. I enjoyed doing that work because you know, you do get to invent new things and potentially new technology, but you're also helping the community. You're helping the science community be able to measure things they could never do before. So just being able to facilitate science by working in industry and creating new instruments was a pretty fun time. So I'm really curious about this. And I mean, I've used some seabird instruments. So when I saw that you worked with them, I was like, oh, that's really fun. So did the science kind of necessitate the research and development? Where, did you have scientists coming to you like, hey, I really want to do this and I kind of need an instrument that can has these capabilities and like you would go back to the drawing board and be like, okay, what do we have? How can we make this work? Like how did that, how did your R&D work? Well, you know, it's funny. It was actually really the people that were in R&D at that time, most of them, it was more us. We I didn't listen really to other scientists. I listened to myself. I said, I want an instrument that does this. Can we develop this? So I developed an autonomous vertical profiler um, before I even worked for Seabird, actually. It was one of their products. Eventually, it got segued into a commercial product because I wanted to be able to, you know, it's really expensive to go out on a ship and just sit there and sample 24 hours a day. I wanted something out there that could do it robotically. Helped develop that with engineers. I developed uh, an in-situ holographic microscope because I wanted to see things in their natural state. When Once you sample something and bring it back to the lab, it's totally different. Um, we don't learn as much that way. But a lot of it, a lot of the R&D were our own ideas. You know, we the, and the people I work with, same thing. We were scientists. We were good, trained scientists. And we knew what the community wanted. And we would take it upon mm-hmm. ourselves to say, okay, can we build an instrument that does this? Occasionally, though, yes, we did. Scientists would work with the company and bring ideas, and we would just try to make it happen. Okay, that's really fun. So a autonomous vertical profiler, that's like an actual piece of equipment that goes down into the ocean. Do you moor it and, yes. and kind of come back, and it just takes samples at regular intervals, and then you come back and collect that? Yep, and it, um, the one we built, it would vertical profile up. So it would not disturb the water because if you're going down, you're sampling your wake essentially most of the time. Mm -hmm. Um, So it would sample as it went up, it would breach, it would get right up to the surface An antenna would stick out of the water and it would actually telemeter the data. So in case the instrument was lost, when you put something Mm -hmm. out in the ocean, it does get lost sometimes. (laughs) We would would at least get the data until it was lost. (laughs) So yeah, we'd leave them out, you know, they were running on batteries, so we'd have to go get them every one or two weeks and replace the batteries, clean them up because it's bio bio fouling when stuff just grows all over stuff in the water. Right. Um, And just cycle them through and try to get these long-term data sets. This is all now really common. You can go out and buy these things commercially now. Back then they didn't exist. So we were just part of that. We need to build these things because we need them. Right. It was fun to be around during that part of oceanography when there was all, there was just so much open area to work in that things had to be developed. Yeah. And I'm, I was also curious about the in situ holographic microscope. What, 
I mean, like what kind of data are you collecting that's different from being the lab? You said it looks very different. Is it just like different organisms can are living in the water column versus like in the lab or if you bring it back, it doesn't survive? Yeah, well, think about this. So this thing samples in a 3D sense. So holography is a 3D picture of space, essentially, or water, however you want to look mm -hmm. at it. And you can map when it takes this holographic image of open water, you can map in 3D space all the particles that are in there, all the phytoplankton, all the zooplankton, little larval mm. fish, things like that. So now, if you're looking at them undisturbed, you can see how they behave when turbulence or mixing goes into the water just mm -hmm. by constantly taking pictures. That can be used, for instance, to understand why they bioluminesce when they're disturbed by water or something else. You can see predator-prey interactions in nature because now you can see how animals interact with each other undisturbed in a 3D cube, essentially. There's many, many things you can do with them. And we've learned through holography that when you sample, especially very fragile organisms, they break up. Like phytoplankton can be these big, long colonial things, many, many cells joined together. But when you try to sample them with a net or put them in a bottle, they break apart and you don't have a sense of how big they really are or how they, what their morphology or their body type is like in nature, which makes a big difference when we're trying to understand them. When you look at things undisturbed, you get a totally different picture of what the ocean's actually like. Yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah, I mean, it's great to look at these holograms and just go, because we animate them. They're movies, essentially. So it's not just a still picture. It's a video camera that can be then 3D reconstructed. And, it, you know, we've learned so much from having this technology. And again, now it, it's getting pretty commonplace. You're starting to see a lot more of this stuff. But back when I was starting, we didn't have these things. <laughs> Again, at the forefront, such an inventor. <laughs> Part of it. You know, there's many, many people I've worked with along the way that um, we all gave ideas to each other or somebody had the original idea and we would, we would take it forward further. That's, that's the great part about science is, you know, that old saying, you stand on the shoulders of giants. Well, it's very mm -hmm. true. Mm -hmm. If we're all collaborating and we do talk and, you know, science is pure like it should be, it's fascinating. You know, it's just, it's amazing what people can do when they're not competitive and they just want to collaborate. Yeah, absolutely. So I want, I'm very curious. We chatted a little bit before we started recording that you used to be very heavy into brewing beer. How did this all tie into your, your inventing scientific work? in the ocean and then you brought it on land with brewing <laughs> well it, and brewing is science you know it's mm -hmm. it's as much an art as it is a science i think oh, winemakers always say that too and you're dealing with microbiology so mm -hmm. you know i used to culture my own uh brewing yeast i would get it out of uh different bottles that you know i wanted that yeast and every yeast strain just like phytoplankton different species different yeast strains they all do different things. You know, they give different flavors. They ferment differently. So that whole science part of it, I loved. I obviously like drinking beer. So that that was a, a payoff as well. Um, 
but just try to understand brewing science was a real motivator for me. Again, being a nerd, um, my hobby was a form of science. So kind of <laughs> odd. But it was a rewarding form of science. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. So something that kind of struck me with your brewing career is that you actually appealed to legislature and had and affected some change. And I thought there was like a really beautiful um, poetry behind that. Cause that's something, you know, we already talked about like writing your legislatures and like they listen, they listen, they listen, but you actually have a story of how that happened. So could you share your brewing and like creating essentially the craft brewing industry in Rhode Island? <laughs> I don't know if I created it, but I, I was part you of know. its history. So when I started there was, there weren't the craft brewing was, you know, now it's a huge thing. There's microbreweries and, and, and brew pubs everywhere that just didn't exist back when I was starting this. And that's one of the reasons I did start brewing is because you couldn't find craft beer. You know, you had to make it yourself if you really wanted something other than Budweiser or one of the other brands out there. But I was seriously thinking about doing it professionally. So I want, I was thinking about, Hey, this is a form of science. I like, I enjoy doing it. I think I want to open a business and do this and start the craft beer revolution, essentially, because that, that was going on across the country right about then. And I come to find out I lived in Rhode Island at that time and it was against the law. Mm-hmm. So there, you know, microbreweries and brew pubs were not legal. And this was true across most of the United States with the exception of Oregon and I believe California, those two states were one of the first to have uh, legalized small brewing operations where you could distribute and all that. Mm-hmm. So I started calling my local state representatives and said, what does it take to change a law? Mm-hmm. I had, I mean, I was naive at that point. I'm like, well, get some example, you know, legislation from another state. We'll work with you to, to write it up. And then if we think it's okay, we'll present it to the state legislature. And that's exactly what happened. I went and made requests to get sample legislation from these other states, worked with a couple of representatives in the state. And at that point, there was another guy who was also trying to become a perfect, open up his own brew pub. And our, our people worked together and it got changed. So mm-hmm. we changed the law. I was part of, of making it legal in Rhode Island. Of course, I never became a professional brewer, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) There's still time. Yes, there is. (laughs) My husband jokes that's going to be his retirement gig. (laughs) Obviously, I'm extremely busy um, doing science and other things these days. Mm -hmm. But when I get to the point, you know, retirement or whatever, when I have more time, I will definitely start brewing again. (laughs) There you go. But I really love that story so much because it's something, you know, I, I say it a lot on the show, like write your legislatures, call, like be act, be proactive and you, and you know, it's not necessarily a science or conservation story, but it's like a change that you wanted to happen and, and you worked with your local representative to make it happen. So I love that story very much. A lot of people feel helpless and they don't, they're like one voice. What does it matter? You know, I'm not going to bother. It matters. Mm-hmm. It really matters. You know, don't feel like you're wasting your time when you pick up the phone or write your local representative or senator or whatever. It does make a difference and they do listen. I mean, I I can attest to this now that I am somewhat way more involved in politics, um, given my Mm -hmm. position in other committees and, and task forces and things I serve on. 
they really politicians pay attention to this because you are a voter. And mm-hmm. if you're if you care enough to actually write them and be proactive, they know there's probably a lot more people that feel the same way and they start to listen. And that's how political will has changed. That's great points. Speaking of all the committees that you're involved with, you're in Florida. You, you Seabird was Rhode Island. All this was Rhode Island. Um, I want to chat a little bit about your shift down here because you have a really cool story with it. But did you know about Harbor Branch before you came down here? Had you worked with them before? So I knew about them because of the Johnson Sea Link, the yes. original submarine, um, deep diving submarine that Harbor Branch ran. Right. Um, that I saw on documentaries, Blue Planet, uh, Na- National Geographic. I mean, I watched a lot of those because I was very interested in the ocean and the organisms in them, obviously. Mm-hmm. And saw Harbor Branch. And they were very, very active back then mm-hmm. when the submarine w- was active. So, yes, I mean, I-, I knew about them from that. And it just seemed like okay. such a fascinating place. Yeah, absolutely. So it's funny, I I just read uh, Edie Witter's book, Below the Edge of Darkness. And uh, it's one of her first, she's actually teamed up with like a television crew, and she's got her eye in the sea. And it's like one of her first deployments, and it's coming up. And the uh, case had flooded. Um, and so she's like a sad panda. And there's a Jim Sullivan on her crew, and they call them Sully. And I was like, I don't, I don't think that's the same guy, but no, I kind of add. It is not. And I, people have told me when I got here that, oh, there was another Jim Sullivan here. Sadly, he's passed away. But oh, okay. yeah, he was part of the sub crew um, <laughs> back in the day. So, yeah. you know, Jim Sullivan's a very common name. I've had this happen to me a real <laughs> It's kind of like John Smith. There's, there's a lot of us yeah. out there. Well, he had a really great quote, and I thought that, um, and you, and you've had some fun quotes throughout the internet that I've seen. But Sully's quote was, uh, "As he, as there's a flooded casing, and like all the data is lost, right?" So he looks at Edie, and he's like, "You know, success in life depends on how well you handle Plan B. Anyone can handle Plan A." And I thought that was really great. <laughs> yep, you learn. I mean, failure you know, you failed. Everyone does. Don't be afraid to fail. That's how we push science. That's how we push everything in our lives. And it is an opportunity. Learn from it, do it better the next time. But every failure can turn into something positive. I mean, it it sounds like, you know, a Hallmark card, but having gone through many failures and many flooded instruments, that's just (laughs) the, the way it is. And you get very retrospective about it where it's like, yeah, I learned a lot from that. You know, I learned how to grease O-rings, so that wouldn't happen. (laughs) (laughs) But I've had, much like Edie, who I know and I worked with way back on bioluminescence back in the day, Mm -hmm. um, many, many times your instruments will fail and flood. Uh, It's just part of doing business in the ocean. Yeah, that makes total sense. So you're making this shift from Seabird, which seems like such a cool position, um, and but they got bought out and there was kind of like a, a shift in the vibe there, right? So we were, actually I worked for the company called Wet Labs. So Wet Labs mm-hmm. made optical instruments. Um, they got bought by Seabird, who in turn was bought by this company called Danaher and it still exists. It's an SEC traded um, stock that you can buy. And we started as a small company. It was less than 50 employees. It was really innovative, um, could 
be very nimble about developing new instruments, really push the technology. And once it got bought by Seabird and became part of this larger holding company, as happens in business, it really becomes about maximizing profit, maximizing efficiency, and, you know, making money. And that's what all businesses are really for, is to make money. Nothing wrong with that. We're a capitalist society. But innovation tends to lag behind what's important to companies when they get into this mode. And we could see that happening. Not that it's a bad company. They make very high quality instruments. But the priorities of, the, of companies change um, when it, it becomes this way. And it, 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 it's a lot harder on the people that just want to be creative and do stuff. And it's not that easy. Now it's, okay, you know, how do we do this in a business model, in a business plan where it's going to be profitable to actually do it? I learned an incredible amount about management and managing people being through that experience. And I'll never, you know, regret it because I've used it now in my current position. But as a scientist at that point, I, I needed to go back to academia. Because it just, um, I didn't want to be a salesman, essentially. Fair enough. That makes sense. So so you still had your position at University of Rhode Island and while this shift was happening, but you decided to make the leap to Harbor Branch. Uh, what, what was kind of the impetus behind that? Well, it was a couple of things. I mean, I had basically three job offers at the time. Seabird wanted, you know, it offered me to go move out West, move my family out West um, to become a, a director of science for the company. Um, you know, I just explained why I really wasn't that excited about doing that. Right. I could have kept my position at URI. I, I still had it. It wasn't a problem. Um, but then the opportunity to come down here opened up and I thought back about, you know, Harbor Branch, that, yeah, that's a cool place. And I got to be honest. I was getting tired of winters in New England. And, <laughs> you know, I came down and visited here when I applied to the job. I was not yet hired, saw the palm trees, saw the beaches. And I'm like, yeah, I could live here. I really could. <laughs> and this is a beautiful campus. I mean, Harbor Branch is a really nice place to work. It's right on the water. I, I saw a, an immense amount of opportunity coming to Harbor Branch. So kind of threw caution to the wind and made the jump to move to Florida. Amazing. And brought your family with. I did. Were they on board? Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I think we, we were, we were all pretty tired of winter at that point. And, <laughs> you know, it, you've always got to take a chance. There was no guarantee I was going to be successful here and, you know, it could have went South, but uh, yeah, it's kind of a pun, but, um, you know, you, you've got to just sometimes trust your instincts and, and trust that you can do a good job. And, you know, starting over at a brand new place where I really didn't know that many people, you know, that's an intimidating thing sometimes. And especially in science where your networking is so critical, mm -hmm. but it was a uh, worthwhile gamble come to find out. Yeah. And I mean, you kind of put your nose to the grindstone when you moved down here. You started as a biological oceanographer and I read that you or heard that you got like a dozen, you did a dozen grant proposals in a year, got a bunch of them funded. And within a couple of years of getting here, you were offered the interim executive director position at Harbor Ranch. That's pretty amazing. 
Yeah, that is pretty much what happened. Um, <laughs> I Because, you know, you start a new job and I, you know, did not come to Harbor Branch with a ton of grants. I was coming out of a business. So that, it's a very different thing. I was out of academia for eight years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I really, it's like, okay, I got to prove myself. So I worked extremely hard writing uh, proposals and was very fortunate. I mean, I got at one point I got seven proposals in a row funded, which is unheard of. I mean, it's just unheard of and that'll never happen again to me. I know that, (laughs) but you know, it paid off. And I also got asked to serve as uh, a a vice chair of our faculty assembly at Harbor branch. And I was brand new. I was here less than a year. Mm. Who knows me Uh, became chair. And that eventually led to the leadership deciding that, um, I could help run the Institute on an interim basis. And I guess I did too good of a job because then they offered it to me full time. (laughs) So I want to chat a little bit about that shift because you, I mean, you started as a scientist and now you're kind of a full-time administrator was what was kind of your mindset as you made that shift? It was really difficult because, you know, I really like doing research. Um, But at the same time, you know, as a scientist, and now I had been here for a couple of years, so I I knew the lay of the land. I knew how Florida Atlantic University worked. That's what we're part of as Harbor Branch. Um, And I I saw that there was a lot of changes that needed to happen. The the place was not operating anywhere near its its peak efficiency. It had not realized its potential, you know, and it, it, it was a challenge. It's like, okay, you know, if I except to do this, I'm giving up my science career, at least temporarily. And I've got to commit to trying to make these changes and in, in working with the university to do it. So mm-hmm. I thought about it long and hard, and I knew it was going to be a lot of hours and a lot of hard work, but um, I accepted doing it. I'd like to think that I've made a lot of positive changes here. Mm-hmm. And it it's not different it's really not that different from what I was doing as a research scientist, because I, you know, as a research scientist, you're just trying to conduct science and, you know, that's your career. When you're an administrator, like I am now, I'm just facilitating science for other people, other scientists. I am just trying to help them be the best scientists they can do, get rid of any roadblocks, make their jobs easier and make them enjoy coming to work. And that's very satisfying to be able to do that. And as an administrator, that's probably the most we can hope for is that we're, we're helping other people do their job better. Yeah, absolutely. I saw one of the initiatives that you really wanted to work on while you were director is kind of getting all of FAU's scientific campuses to work together. Like there's Tech down in Dania Beach, which my husband was part of, part of when he was in ocean engineering school. Um, that's where he graduated from. And then, you know, F- Charles E. Schmidt College of Science and all the other campuses. How is that going, kind of getting all the arms of FAU to talk to each other? Yeah, and it, that's not necessarily, that wasn't my initiative. That um, right. our president, President John Kelly, started what was called the Pillars Initiative, which essentially in Harbor Branch is one of the four pillars that, that were um, part of this program was to do exactly that, is to increase collaboration between all the different units and all the different colleges within the FAU system, which is large. We have six different campuses over a good portion of the East Coast of Florida. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and really see if we could increase collaboration and increase the research enterprise. So John Kelly, our president, wants to see FAU become a major, or what's called an R1 research university, you know, which means we have to bring in a real lot of research dollars. The only way to do that is to get people to work together and work hard um, at writing proposals and going after these very large institutional grants. So all four of the pillar directors, of which I'm one of them, besides being the executive director of Harbor Branch, I'm also the director of the Harbor Branch pillar within the FAU system. Mm. And there's three others besides me for other parts of the university. We all work really hard on this mission to do this. I'm involved in the engineering and environmental side of it. Amazing. So you connect all the way down to SeaTac. So for listeners, Harbor Ranch is in Fort Pierce and SeaTac, I think SeaTac's the southernmost campus of FAU, right? Yes. All the way down in Dania Beach. So that's like two, two and a half hour drive from Fort Pierce. Yeah, it's a couple hours. It is. (laughs) You know, it's a big, FAU is a pretty big system. Yeah, it's um, but it's good. We're up here in the north. We're the northernmost camp- campus, so it's some. Sometimes that's good. We have a little bit of isolation, so we don't have to deal with day to day things as much. But mm-hmm. sometimes it's not as good. Out of sight, out of mind. Mm, fair enough. Fair enough. So Harbor Branch is in their fiftieth year, which is amazing. Um, started in nineteen seventy one by Edward Link and. Jay Seward Johnson Sr. And I mean, it's kind of an amazing collaboration. So Ed Link was a famous kind of inventor and he took all of his flight experience and brought it into the oceanic realm. And that's how they created the Johnson Sea Link submersible and Harbor Branch was founded just shortly before they started that invention. What's some of the things that have changed or stayed the same kind of over the 50 year tenure? Um, wow. Yeah. That's a whole nother podcast right there. Um, <laughs> that's, that's an hour or two. I mean, the short thing, it, the, the abridged version again, is that Ed Link and Sierra Johnson both had a love of exploration of the ocean. So they were mutual friends. They, they really did that. And most of their science and what they did here, starting this Institute was motivated around how can we increase our knowledge and exploration of the oceans. So that's the development mm-hmm. of deep diving submarines and the development of a research institute uh, for Florida. So they mm-hmm. did that. And Mo- Harbor Branch at that point was an independent institute. It was not part of a university system. And mm-hmm. it was mostly supported through the very generous donations of Seward Johnson. Now, you may not know who he is, but Johnson and Johnson is a very large pharmaceutical and uh, home goods company, mm-hmm. medical company. He was one of the heirs to the Johnson and Johnson fortune. So right. he was the son of one of the founders, correct? Right. So mm-hmm. this is a man with access to literally, you know, over a billion dollars easily. So mm-hmm. he could invest in things that normally scientists just don't have, you know, that ability. He could buy ships, he could support the submarines, he could buy the land that we currently sit on. Um, all of that he helped with. Through the years, as you know, things changed, people, scientists were hired here, it expanded. He wanted to see more uh, external research done. The Institute got to the point that 
I don't know if you could say it was too big or it was not bringing in enough money from external research to cover its bills. Mm-hmm. So the Institute was running at a serious, you know, millions of dollar deficit per year, which mm-hmm. was unsustainable. So right. the Institute was going to go was going to collapse and go out of business. And at that point, um, Seward had already passed on and his son, uh, junior, uh, was, helping run the um, Institute and doing a, a very good job. But I think they lost their will to want to keep on throwing, you know, money down. And I wouldn't say it's down the drain, but just supporting something that's losing money. Right. So it came to the point that the Institute was either going to be allowed to collapse or FAU essentially proposed that they could fold Harbor branch into the university uh, give an influx of cash and, and and renovate some of the buildings and let it work as a research institute within the university system. And that's, in fact, what happened in 2007. Um, so we've been part of FAU since then. Mm-hmm. But there was a major transition from a group of scientists and engineers and people who worked here who depended on internal money from the Johnsons to run the institute to we had to become self-sustaining. Our scientists right. had to bring in enough money to support the Institute right. as a traditional research Institute, no longer um, dependent on that. So there, there was a struggle, I think for a while, but now uh, we this year set a record for external funding. We brought in uh, almost $27 million in external um, research funds. Amazing which is really good for an institute of our size. I mean, we essentially have, I think, 32 full-time faculty. That's not a lot to bring in that much money. Um, yeah. Congratulations. Yes. So it that was the biggest change, is that transition from a privately supported and funded institute to now a university institute that essentially earns its own way. Yeah. You. This kind of brings up a good point that you've touched on in the past, and that's kind of what a research professor is. So you mentioned you, your job is to remove some of the roadblocks to helping these scientists do their job. And you have 30 some odd scientists currently on staff, but not all of them are fully funded salaries, right? Only a percentage of their salaries are funded and they're responsible for coming up with the rest of their funding. Could you explain a little bit more about what a research professor is and, and how it's not just doing pure science? Yeah, and it, it really depends on the institute you're at. They're all kind of different. I mean, I've been a research scientist my whole life at several institutes, so each one's a little bit different, but there's common parts of it. So a research scientist, as opposed to an academic professor who is you know, tenure track, is paid to teach, a research scientist is not paid to teach. They're paid to do research. Mm-hmm. At most institutes and universities, research scientists are really not funded all that much. They are expected to bring in their own salary through grants and other mm-hmm. mechanisms. Typically, most universities probably pay about 5 to 10% of the salary, and the rest you have to bring in. Some pay a lot more. I'm not going to say all, but some will pay up to like you know 50 or 75%. Uh, marginally, normally get somewhere around 25%. That would be a decent deal. And you've got to bring in the rest. So it's a tough job. It's a really tough job. You've got to constantly 
in some ways hustle for your salary. Mm -hmm. If you have a bad year, no one's going to cry for you. You're not going to be able to pay your salary, you know, and it's quite simple. You can lose your job and this does happen. There's ups and downs in research funding. So it's a highly stressful, competitive and difficult job. It's not, not for the weak hearted. And (laughs) (laughs) you've got to, because you're constantly writing grants, you know, if you're good, you'll, you'll do fine. You have to always get used to rejection because, Mm -hmm. you know, for every 10 grants you write, you might get two if you're Mm -hmm. lucky. So you can't get discouraged when you get grant proposals back that someone just ripped apart. Right. You know, you just got to keep on trying. So it kind of, the occupation sorts out people that can't take it, you know, and when someone, when someone makes it as a research scientist, they, they're normally pretty thick skinned and they, 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 they work hard and they're pretty th- thick skinned at Harbor branch. We try to pay 50% of our scientist salary, which mm. is really good. It's a, it's a great deal. They can supplement their salary with teaching. So even though we're not, we're not tenure track, we can have research professors teach classes and then give them even a higher percentage of their salary because they're doing something above and beyond their normal job. So you can, you can make a decent living as a research scientist and have relative security, but it's not like a tenure track job where, you know, you're, they're going to pay you no matter what, you just have to teach your classes. And once you get tenure, you got tenure. So it's a, it's a different thing. It's why for research scientists, getting support from the community, getting philanthropy, you know, Mm -hmm. philanthropy and donations are so critical because it is such a hard job, but we need these researchers out there doing this work. So it's a tough gig. And I I think they're the hardest working scientists, you know, in the country, people that (laughs) accept to be research scientists. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a lot. It's a lot to, to put on your shoulders, just the science and providing the salary for yourself and anyone that works with you really. Right. Yeah. And most research scientists don't lack confidence. I mean, you got to, you you know, if you don't believe in yourself, no one else is. So you do, you do have to have that just very confident, Hey, I'm good. I am gonna, I'm going to be able to do this. So. Hey, I'm good. (laughs) Yeah. You can't, you can't go into it weak hearted where it's difficult. (laughs) And it, it truly is, is when you're starting out, you know, when you're a, someone that wants to go into this and it's your first job or whatever, it's like, you don't have the network or all the connections and you don't know the funders and the program managers that well yet. So it takes a while to, to become a seasoned soft money or research right. scientist, however you want to look at it. So right. I feel for, you know, the people that are new to it, cause it's a lot of hard work and we, that's what we try. We try to help our, our new people out as best we can and point them uh, to people to work with. But networking is so critical yes. when you're starting out in this field. You have yes. to have a strong colleague network. Yes. I was, I was just about to say that there comes yeah. in that network again. <laughs> yeah. That's, and that's why people, you know, um, for the scientists or budding scientists who are listening to this, we always have, national meetings, you know, you go and present your science, you give a talk or you stand by a poster and tell people about your science. That's all well and good and everyone should do it. But what you're really there for is just to talk to and network with other scientists. You know, the talks aren't really all that important. 
it's this is where you're going to meet the big people in the field. You got to just got to go out and talk to them. You got to get known. People have to know your name. Yep, absolutely. So Harbor Branch is involved in so much and it's had, I mean, quite the legacy you mentioned earlier. You've seen them on the Discovery Channel. I have too. So Discovery Channel, they've had all of their, you know, the Sea Link has done some amazing things, including finding a deep water coral reef right off of Fort Pierce um, that's now protected because of the research they've done. And now, I mean, there's marine conservation, engineering, um, harmful algal bloom research, aquaculture, defense. I mean, there's so many fingers in this pie. What are some of your highlighted projects? I saw that there's um, a sea prism that came out a couple years ago, and it's a device built by NASA to help monitor algal blooms, specifically in Lake Okeechobee in Florida, which is an issue that we have. I feel like for you, that had to have been like a fun fun baby to kind of present into the world it's like right up your alley. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and as part of that in a, in a bigger, and it, it's one of the many things we do that's towards understanding harmful algal blooms in the state of Florida, which is a, a big issue as we discussed earlier, we started the Florida center for coastal and human health um, with some uh, seed funding from our Harbor branch foundation and that's really been the impetus for trying to bring together all these different research technologies and researchers at both Harbor Branch and other campuses and other universities to really concentrate on holistically what this problem is like and understanding it and what can we do, um, what health effects are there to our population. Oh, there's so many different questions. And I, I fold all of that, including the C-PRISM, which is a monitoring device in that same kind of center research. That's why we create research centers at an institute mm-hmm. is to kind of get that, you get that critical weight of people doing research and then try to weave it all together to come up with something that's greater, you know, greater than the sum of its parts for an understanding of um, whatever particular issue the center is studying. So that's a, a really big thing we're doing right now. Hopefully we're shooting to get um, federal funding to support it. Uh, hopefully that'll happen in the next year or two. Otherwise, other lot, we have many, many large projects. We're doing a, a really big project with the USDA right now on trying to increase the technology for warm water aquaculture. Uh, it's a big issue in the U.S. The U.S. is lagging well behind other nations with developing aquaculture industry, which is a food security issue. It's also um, a trade imbalance issue. Um, mm. We have a, a $14 billion trade deficit because of our aquaculture. We bring in so much food from other countries mm. when we could do it here. And we have the technology, we have the business people that could do it. Mm-hmm. So the government and the USDA is starting to invest in, in trying to increase that capacity in the United States. So we're spearheading that here. That's a, a huge effort. With technology, we just got uh, about a year and a half ago an $11 million appropriation from the Office of Naval Research to work on all of things bioluminescence again. <laughs> so my career has come full circle. Um, it was really important in the 80s, and then the Navy went away from it. it. Most of the research got classified, and it wasn't done by general scientists. But now the Navy is very interested in bioluminescence again. So we are working on making some new instruments or updated versions of instruments to assess bioluminescence in the ocean. 
So that's near and dear to my heart. Yeah. Uh, and I'm part of that uh, appropriation research right now. You know, and there, there's just, we could, again, do a whole podcast on just the different, you know, breadth of research that's done here. But that's what makes Harbor Branch just a fascinating place to work. It's for such a, sm- really a small institute, we do an amazing amount of oceanic and marine biology research. Yeah, I mean, truly, truly do. And it's, and it's not just in Florida, you know, it's worldwide amazing efforts. Very cool. So as we kind of wind up here, I have a few favorite questions I like to ask. And you know what? I haven't asked this question in a really long time, but I'm going to bring it back. What is your favorite sea creature or creatures? And it could be just based on today. (laughs) My favorite sea creature. There are so many things I like. And I, you know, I'd still go with phytoplankton, but a very specific kind of phytoplankton, dinoflagellates. Yes. So dinoflagellates are a type of phytoplankton, but they're they're mobile, so they can actively swim. They produce bioluminescence. They produce toxins. They're for a single cell organism. They're one of the most highly evolved creatures probably on the earth. It's amazing what they can do. Uh, they can sense light. They can sense gravity. They can detect chemicals in the environment. And this is a a single cell with no nervous system. Mm. So it. It's, you know, and they've been around way, way longer than human beings. (laughs) So it's, uh, to this day, I am still fascinated by them. And I would say that's oddly my, probably my favorite thing in the ocean. (laughs) No, I love it. I love that. So the reason why I stopped asking this question is because somebody asked me the question and I was like, I have to pick one. Um, and like that that day I had like just been thinking about an amazing dive I had with eagle rays and I was like today it's eagle rays ask me tomorrow it's going to be different because I love all the animals um and all the creatures because dinoflagellates are amazing as well so I get that wait you say dinoflagellates versus dinoflagellates I know this is a hot contest uh yeah you know what it depends on what day it is (laughs) I'm listening to (laughs) kind of like kind of like your eagle ray thing (laughs) You know, I can't even, my major professor, he, he used to correct me all the time and I'm sure I'm probably saying it wrong again. I don't know. <laughs> no, you know what? That's, um, I think it was Hanisak that like got me on, he's we, like in one of my classes at semester by the sea at Harbor Branch, he was like, it's not dinoflagellates, it's Dino. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I think, I think the, the thing to remember, it's like, it's not a dinosaur, it's a dinos. Right. It's like if you're saying it like a dinosaur, it's not right. Yeah, which I don't get because it's kind of spelled like that. But <laughs> I'll roll with it. That's fine. Uh, what does the ocean mean to you? I don't, I don't know how other people have answered this question. I mean, the ocean is life. Obviously, mm-hmm. it's our world. We're the big blue marble. It's you know they call it Earth, but it should be called water. So you know we're an ocean planet. We all evolve from the ocean. And I don't know how many people like really feel this way, but I have this like metaphysical connection to the ocean when I stand on the shore and look out at it. It, mm-hmm. it, it seems like home to me. I mean, it's a really warm, hard to explain feeling, but whenever I get by the ocean, I just find it very comforting. And uh, that's probably bizarre, but there's... Nope. I resonate it, with that. <laughs> yeah. It's just... Um, 
the ocean is that's where we come from that's that's our primitive home and it, it still resonates in me i still feel that way it makes sense i mean we're mostly water right we are. So it's all those cells we, vibrating with the ocean not only are we water we also have salt water in our veins i mean it's not it's only about nine parts per thousand in our blood but it's still mm-hmm. salt <laughs> so we carry the ocean around inside us absolutely what is your favorite field story or stories to tell? And this could be an amazing day out in the water, everything went right, or, you know, I'm sure you've had lots of fun equipment malfunctions in 20, 30 foot seas. So a day like that, and makes a great story now. <laughs> I, I uh, This is an easy one. Um, <laughs> so back when I was doing bioluminescence research off the coast of Iceland, on a uh, back then there were a lot more what we call deep ocean blue water cruises so not as much now you don't see it as much but you'd go out on a ship for three to four weeks you know at mm. a time and go do research so we were on one of those long cruises we're off the coast of iceland which is already a kind of some, somewhat inhospitable place in the ocean but and this was back before cell phones back you know all we had were simple satellite phones and telemetry they'd get on the bridge of like for weather Mm-hmm. So the captain told us as we were out there doing our research that, you know, our home port was Rhode Island and they were about to be hit by a, a hurricane. It was Hurricane <laughs> Bob. And I forget, it was early 90s, I guess. And we're all initially worried about our houses. I'm worried about my family. And it's like, ah, oh, well, I hope everything's all right. And we had no way to contact anybody, really. Right. But then the conversation changed from that to the captain saying, oh, and by the way, the hurricane's now headed straight for us. <laughs> now, you don't take a ship into a port for a hurricane and we had to keep stationed. We couldn't leave. He's like, we are going to ride this hurricane out right where we are. Wait, stop. Why can't, why don't you take a ship? In, oh, because you oh, don't they get damaged. In yeah, most of the time the Navy will take their ships to sea if there's a hurricane. So mm-hmm. that's just common practice with, lar- with large boats. That makes sense. It makes sense. Like I've seen all the boats wash up after hurricanes and how much damage they get. But in in practice, like we're going to go on a boat in a hurricane. Yeah. Well, they try to they try to run away from it, but we didn't have that option. We had to stay where we were because after the hurricane passed, we had to be back on station to work. So we were worried about our families. And then, you know, we were back on the deck. We're working. And you can see the hurricane coming on the horizon. I mean, that's there's nothing else out there. And you just see these foreboding black clouds. And it's like, there it is. It's coming. And then the captain says, okay, you know, the waves start getting bigger in front of the hurricane. And they did. You know, we were starting to see 20 to 30 foot swells, which I had never seen before. I had never been in a storm this size. Uh, and then they had to, they cleared everything, no working on deck. It was nighttime when the hurricane actually hit us and it got to the point that uh, like, okay, not only can you go down the deck and we're dogging all the doors down, you can't walk around in the ship. You got to go down into your bunk below decks, put up your storm board. This is a board in a bunk that keeps you from rolling out. (laughs) Find as many blankets, life, life preservers, whatever you can to wedge yourself in and ride it out. You can't walk around when a boat's in the middle of a hurricane and, you know, we were up on the bridge before nighttime hit and the full thing hit. But I mean, I just seeing, you know, 30 to 40 foot swells at that point, that gets right. scary. You know, it's like, yeah, you start to realize you're a little tiny boat in a very big ocean. How big was the boat actually? Oh, it was like 180 feet. 
Yeah, and we were we were disappearing below the horizon in the trough of the waves that were coming. I mean, some of them oh. were huge. And oh <laughs> so during the night, you know, no one can get up. They're trying to ride it out in the bridge. And what we had to do is go up and down wind. So you want to stay like into the waves, obviously, you know, parallel right. with the wind direction. Yeah. But you have to turn eventually and go in the parallel or in a perpendicular to wind, which is in the trough of a wave. Anyone who's been in a ship right. knows that that's not a fun place to be. So about every 30 minutes, we had to make the turn and go through the trough. And on one of them, uh, I mean, I you heard everything in the boat that wasn't totally bolted down go flying. Dishes were smashing. I mean, the boat almost capsized. Oh my gosh! And we, I mean, I was just like at that point, I'm like, oh, I'm gonna die in this in this boat. Um, but we didn't wedge in this bunk. <laughs> wedge in this bunk, almost being thrown. I almost got thrown out of it during this. So the next day, it, it it calms down. We all survive. We're all shaken, obviously, but we go up to the bridge, and they had printed out from the helm control that we had taken over a seventy degree roll. Now, if you think oh, about man. what that is in a boat that size, the boat, you know, it was 20 degrees from being underwater. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, and a, a good portion of it did go underwater. Um, so we came very close to flipping. <laughs> and, and I uh, I will never forget that. And it, it, I came away with a very healthy respect for the ocean and nature. And it's just, wow, we are tiny compared to the power of what it's like being out in the open ocean in a hurricane. It's, um, yes. yeah, that was eye opening. I, I, uh, <laughs> the ocean is an amazing thing and that I get to see something a lot of people don't get to see. <laughs> no. <laughs> but, oh my gosh. But it was, I look back at it with fond memories now. <laughs> back then I was scared to death. <laughs> Yes. I mean, that's the thing about field days gone wrong. They make really great stories. I think that is um, the pinnacle of field days gone wrong, though. I got, I was in the middle of the ocean on a hurricane yeah. with giant waves and we almost capsized. That is a heck of a story. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I, it's like it happened yesterday. I could, I still can feel the emotion I felt sitting in my bunk, just wondering when the night was going to be over. Yeah. Now, did you go back? Like that wasn't your last research cruise, right? Like you went on more research cruises after that. Did you have to hype yourself up? Uh, no, no. I it's okay. like, hey, we survived. It was fine, you know. And it, it was only <laughs> we were doing a series of cruises. I mean, this one's even this, this could have ended badly, I guess. But we had gone out mm -hmm. on another one shortly thereafter, and we had, we were coming across the Nova Scotian Grand Banks back to our home port, and it was right before the storm of the century where they wrote that book mm. about the fishing boat that uh, disappeared and they made a movie. The perfect storm. Yes. The perfect storm. I was out on the water probably a week before that hit coming across the grand <laughs> banks and had our, our ship schedule just been a little different. I might've been in the middle of that one too. <laughs> so yeah. And I, I remember when that hit and I was still, the hurricane was still fresh in my mind and I'm like, oh, I am so glad I'm on land. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. Crazy. You never know what's going to happen in the ocean. No, wild. no, I don't. Most of the work I do now is if I do go out at all, it's coastal work day trips, which are um, 
a little more fun. Yeah, a little more tame. (laughs) (laughs) If you were given a blank check, unlimited funds, man, you've got a lot uh, as the director of Harbor (laughs) Branch, what project or projects would you want to do? Up to three. I had somebody that was like, I have to pick one. Uh, Well, I'll give you, I'll give you two. One's going to be a fantasy. The other will be a realistic. So the the fantasy answer would be that I I would work to end all sources of pollution coming into our air and water and clean up all the existing Mm. pollution. Um, It's the, it's the biggest problem, you know, that we have. And it even has led to, climate change, global warming, all that, but nutrient pollution, plastics pollution, it's, boy, if we could just invest in cleaning a lot of it up, it would be incredibly helpful to our environment and us. And us. That's that's the other part of this. It's not just like an environmental issue. We are part of the environment and all of this affects us. Yeah. And that's why I go with my realistic answer. And I actually advocate for this um, in my position in the state a lot when when I give public talks, but I would like to see some serious investment into long-term or what they call longitudinal health studies on the Mm -hmm. chronic exposure of humans and wildlife as well to toxins in the water. Mm -hmm. So that would be Mm -hmm. harmful algal bloom toxins, plastic breakdown toxins, other things Mm -hmm. that we basically put there. We don't have anywhere near enough of that type of research, and we just don't know what we're doing to ourselves or the, you know, the animals mm-hmm. in the environment. Truly, we don't know. And we are, mm-hmm. unfortunately, exposed to many, many different chemicals now. And it's just, and they're, these are very expensive studies, but it would be good to, to start pressing on getting some of these done. Yeah. I agree. That's something I've been thinking a lot about recently. Well, not recently, just been thinking a lot about because, yeah, it just seems like everywhere from, you know, the fertilizers you mentioned, those are all chemicals to the things that that are sprayed, you know, glyphosate sprayed in the state and then harmful algal blooms are happening. And yeah, we're exposed to a lot. Yeah. And it's a lot, you know, and the acute exposure is one thing when you, you know, you feel sick right away and you know, you're exposed and you get over it. It's the low level chronic exposure. This is what we don't mm-hmm. know what's happening. I mean, does this lead to cancer? Does it lead to Alzheimer's? Does it lead to this, that? Um, there's so many unknowns, and we we do get these low-level sublethal exposures all the time. And this is a, a right. you know, I worry about plastics. I mean, there's plastics in all of us now. Mm-hmm. There's plastics in every yeah. animal out there because microplastics right. just get into the environment and they get into us. You know, right. what happens yeah, when and those it's not break- just in the water, it's in the air too. Yeah, when what happens when that stuff breaks down? You know, what are the breakdown products? Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of different kind of plastics out there. Um, right. Yeah, I don't know. Someday, someday someone will, will take it very seriously or there'll be an outbreak, a disease outbreak that, or health outbreak that will mm-hmm. force the hand of government to start understanding this stuff. Well, I hope it... Uh happens before that <laughs> yeah unfortunately we're a very reactive species yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. bad things have to happen and then people pay attention that, that's been my experience yeah. through my life yeah i am that's what i've observed as well on that note <laughs> <I think. laughs> on that happy note <laughs> at the end of each episode i like to leave the audience with the conservation ask to go forth and bring into the world 
what would you like the audience to take from your episode or go do? Um, exactly what I said before, become politically active. You know, in my case, I'd like to see people be active in water quality or pollution and call and write your representatives, you know, at any level of government, do whatever you can. If not that, mm-hmm. then donate to Harbor Branch. We could really use your support. <laughs> yeah. I love it. They're doing great research. We are. Research is expensive. Research costs money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If listeners want to find you, connect with you, learn more about you and or Harbor Branch, where's the best place to do so? I would say through our website. Website portal is um, my contact information is definitely on there. All our programs and, you know, the highlights of things we do are there. We're also active on most social media. So we have a Facebook, uh, Instagram, various other pages. So any of those outlets will eventually lead you to us. Amazing. Well, I know I'll put a link to this and everything we chatted about in the show notes as well. Jim, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed our chat. Oh, no problem. Stop by Harbor Branch again. (laughs) I will. I will. This episode is brought to you by Florida Atlantic University's Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute. 2021 marks the 50th anniversary of FAU Harbor Branch's relentless pursuit of ocean science for a better world. Located in Fort Pierce, Florida, FAU Harbor Branch's cutting-edge research focuses on five major areas, marine ecosystem conservation, aquaculture, the connection between ocean and human health, technological innovation, and national defense. During my time at Harbor Branch as part of the undergraduate Semester by the Sea program, I learned so much about the ocean and what it takes to become a good scientist. The programs and opportunities offered at Harbor Branch have continued to swell since. To learn more and how you can get involved, please visit fau.edu hboi. That's fau.edu hboi. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight from me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community one person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.